0: Welcome to Center Church Dubai. We are a church built and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ours is the story of a faithful God who saved imperfect people by His grace, united them by the love of Christ, and sent them out to bring many more to Him. Thanks for joining us. Father, we thank you that your Life and your ministry and your words are recorded for us. Thank you that your word is still alive today. And thank you that your word alone has the ability to search, to divide, Lord, even between soul and spirit. And so would you do that for us this morning, drawing us closer to you, showing us our need, and leaving us, Lord, with our greatest joy. as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, some passages that are very difficult to do any justice to, uh, and some of them, today's text especially is one of those. You had verses 17 to 22 read to you, but that is part of a larger unit. It begins in chapter 1. And so. Uh, those verses are not ones that we can igno- and, uh, ignore. And so here's the way we'll go about it. 1 to 16 is critical because the context is Jesus sending out disciples two by two, and there are several principles of discipleship, several ways in which Christian living um, is taught. And so a lot of that is relevant to us as well. And so over the weeks, as we walk through the narrative of uh, Luke, we will find ways to get back to some of these principles in more detail. But for now, I think we'll just look at 1 to 16 at a very quick pace. We won't even read them. What I'll do is I'll just call out some critical aspects that the disciples need to learn that's relevant for us, and then we'll come to our text in 17 to 22. So, it's there in your printout. Um, I, don't, it, it, I don't think it's going to come up on the screen, so if you have your Bibles, you can glance through from 1 to 16 as, as I call out some of these things. So, the first one, and I want to so seven points, the first one would be disciples are sent. And I say that because even when you look at the opening verses there, verses 1 to 3, you will see that word emphasized. In fact, it's, it's in bold, trying to reiterate the fact that we are sent out. Now, why do I say that? Because as much as sometimes we encourage one another to, uh, that there's a need in the kingdom and that the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few, we must not forget that this is not for volunteers. This is for people who are lovers of God, not volunteers. And so, all of us who are commissioned, not just the disciples, we're all under lordship and we all are commissioned. So, in that sense, we are sent. So, think of it as going to your workplace. Uh, You don't go there because you want to somehow find a way to be provided for. But rather, you already belong to a father who knows your needs and you're provided for. And so, you're sent to a place just to taste his provision. And so, if that's your mindset, then you know it's kingdom first that will dominate your thought process at your workplace. Our second one, his disciples are sent out in trust and dependence. Why? Because you see that uh, where he says in verse 3 and 4, you're sent like lamb among wolves. And he also says, don't take a purse, don't take a bag, don't take sandals, don't even greet anyone on the way. So you're sent as lamb among wolves in the sense you're sent in an environment where they will not be able to relate to these kingdom principles. So they're going to reject you. And what manner are you sent in? You're sent where you can't even take these basic things with you. You, you. you can't take a purse, no bag, no sandals. In other words, complete dependence and trust. So when you're on this journey, it's not your savings plan that will kick in a couple of years later or your resume that will come to your rescue, but you just completely depend and trust in the Lord. And as you do that, notice he says, the next point would be a disciple is to, be, is to go out in a resolute manner. Why do I say resolute? Because when he says, don't greet anyone. When you go in a certain manner like this and you head out, people are not used to this. So they look at you and they'll ask you, saying, you don't have a bag, you don't have sandals, You're not even carrying your purse, and they will convince you to go back home. They'll give you those arguments about how the world is, is not ready for this, and they will not receive you. They will argue with you from Scripture, saying how planning is not a bad thing. Have you noticed that? Quite often when you speak on dependency, people immediately speak about, well, planning isn't a sin, isn't it? Not that it isn't, but what's on the inside in us? Are we truly dependent or not? You speak about money, and quickly people who have never read the Old Testament will jump to some text that speaks about tithing, or about something about how ants will save up for the future in Proverbs. And so our minds are wired like that, and God wants to teach us absolute dependency. So he says, don't greet them when you leave like that. Because if you greet these people, they're going to tell you to go back and take your purse and your sandals. Fourth one, disciples are messengers of peace. Why do I say that? You see that in verse 5 downwards, when you enter a house and you say peace to this house, if anyone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Now, what does this mean? It's not merely a greeting, like in those days they would go and say shalom, and if someone says shalom back, then it's all well. No, this message of peace is what you see through the gospel of Luke. Like when Jesus, for example, in Luke 4 goes to the synagogue or everywhere and preaches saying he's come to proclaim something. The year of the Lord's favor is here. Or go back, think of the angels greeting them. That they've come to greet them with peace, glory in the highest and peace to men on earth. Because there's a certain news and disciples carry that message. And so we're messengers of peace. And then you have point five, which are disciples are to be content. Why? It says, stay there. When you go to a house, stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you. They weren't supposed to think about what the other 70 would get. Is a guy in the next village, got a better bed space. What's his menu like? No, don't look at all that. Contentment with godliness is great gain. And then sixth one, proclaim the good news. You notice that where he says in verse 9, heal the sick and tell them. So even as you minister and you serve people, this is critical, tell them what, that the kingdom of God is near you. And so when you go around and you live like this in complete dependence and you're resolute and you're not anxious about what other people are, at some point they will come and ask you something and you don't give them a generic answer saying, oh God is good. You're specific about what you want want to tell them, tell them the gospel, tell them that the kingdom of God is here. And then you have in verse 10, when you enter a town and are not welcomed, even the dust on your town we wipe from your feet is a warning to you. Now, we don't do that. That was a rabbinic tradition because when they went around in those days, when they got through certain villages and towns and they came back to Israel, to their hometown, they were to wipe off dust or any clay that stuck beneath their slippers as a symbolic way of saying, we are Israel, we're set apart, we've got nothing to do with the other nations. And so in a sense over here, Even if people were rejecting the message the disciples had, Jesus was telling them, do this. Tell them that even though you're doing this within Israel, when you wipe the dust off your feet, as far as the kingdom of God is concerned, you're outsiders because you've rejected this message. And so that dusting off or that separation happens even today. We don't do that as preachers or teachers or anybody that you encourage. But God's word continues to do that, isn't it? There's a shaking off constantly of who is in the kingdom and who is not. And every time we hear God's word, and depending on how we respond to it, not everyone who hears is saved. And so that's why He gives the examples of the cities soon after that, Bethsaida and Chorazin, saying, "Look at the kind of grace! Look at the kind of miracles! It's going to be worse for you than Sodom and Gomorrah, and how much more worse for us." And so that is the seriousness of of uh, a discipleship mission. Or for us, or for those of you who have embraced Christ as Lord, and that is also a lifestyle and a manner in which we're supposed to walk. And so they go out on this mission. You can see how intense this training program is, how joyful it is, how difficult it is. And then you come to the verse that was read to you in verse 17. They all come back, and now they want to give Jesus a report. This is a big seminary class. There's about 72 of them. And so they come back, and then what have they got to say? What do we? And we want to learn something from this. Because even as we press on and we enjoy being content in Christ, we enjoy dependency in the Lord, but we're still sent like sheep among wolves. There's going to be some difficulties here. What is this joy that the Lord wants us to know and to learn so that we will press on in our journey as well? So look at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now you can imagine the experience, isn't it? No bags, nothing. No purse, and they were absolutely provided for, and they come back, and as they preach, they could see captives being released by demons. They experienced all of that, and they come back, and what's the first thing that's on everybody's mind? Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And they expected Jesus to look at them and said, well done, now you can graduate. Call your friends and your family and let's celebrate. But he doesn't say that. He's more concerned. He wants them to find joy that is not what they're experiencing but deeper joy that will last, more solid joy. And so he responds to them. What does he tell them? Look at verse 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, and I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You notice how Jesus is first responding to them. Because in the beginning he says, I saw Satan fall. Because what they said at first was, not even demons are submitting to us. And he says, no, I've all, this has already happened. Satan is a defeated foe. I've been there. I've witnessed it. When he was full of himself, he fell like a flash of lightning. That's the end. And you are tasting what is already true, And you're ministering. You're just witnessing that demons submit to God's name. And they operate under his sovereign plan. They come under his authority. And then he says, I saw Satan fall, and I have given you authority. In other words, he's reminding them, this authority that you tasted, don't forget, it's because it was in my name and it's about what I have done. And he also goes on to add, I've given you authority to trample over snakes and scorpions and to overcome the enemy. Now, what is that? Simply, it means that you're on my mission and I've sent you and I will protect you and you will bring to pass this mission that I've sent you on. And this was not new, by the way. Even Israel were told this, that when they went out in the wilderness, they would tread over snakes and scorpions, but God would carry them home to the promised land. And that's the point of this text, saying, if I've called you and I've sent you, I will take you home. It will come to pass. But he doesn't say that path from where I send you to getting home is going to be an easy one. There's no sort of a blanket cover saying, if you're my disciple, you're never going to taste anything that's difficult. There's no trial. There's no suffering. So, what this does not mean is if you become a disciple, the next time you go to a zoo, you stick your hand into a glass container that has a venomous snake, which a lot of people actually did. They bought venomous snakes to churches, trying to take a literal interpretation of this. And so, you can see that's not the case over here. You can see that we're precious, not a hair will fall from our head. But at the same truth, we know what the disciples' lives were like. Read the life of missionaries. They were tortured, they were sordid too, they were imprisoned. They contracted leprosy from those they served. And so God, in other ways, in His sovereignty, allowed that to happen. He was with them through that suffering, and He received all those faithful people in glory. Now, it's easy for us to sit in the comfort of our home sometimes and say, you know what, that believer, that Christian's got cancer, it's the work of a demon. We don't know what's going on. And quite often then we should wonder, there seems to be a lot of demons that are scared of chemotherapy in some cases, isn't it? This isn't some ghostbuster movie. This is a real mission that Jesus is sending them out in a fallen world. There's going to be suffering of various kinds as His disciples step out and as we go down this route as well. And God is saying, nothing will happen to you without my permission. And whatever is going to happen to you, it's going to happen under my sovereignty. It's going to happen for your pruning, for your good, and for my glory. That's how we understand that text. And so he reminds them in a sense saying, look, you're under my authority and you're under my protection. And now, look at the statement. Keep that in mind and look at the statement the disciples are saying. Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And you could hear that in different ways. You could hear it as, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Or you could hear it as, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Or very rarely... Lord, even the demons submit to us, and it's all about your name. Now, there seems to be some correction there in how they said this. The Lord knows their hearts. We don't have to guess. So look at how Jesus responds to them. Do not rejoice that spirits submit to you. I don't want you to rejoice in this, but rejoice in something else. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you see what he's guarding them from here? He's guarding them from the joy of an outcome. He's guarding them from the joy of an achievement. He's guarding them from an experience that they just tasted because something went well for them. And he's saying, don't rejoice in that. You have to ask yourself, is your joy shaped in outcomes that you experience? Most of the time, isn't it? We're outcome-driven people. That is why we are so anxious, because we always are scared of what kind of outcomes lie ahead in store in the future for us your health goes a little sideways and ramp up the insurance policy your job looks a little shaky and now quickly it's just wise to save so much more and start networking as desperately as we can, your kids are growing in a competitive world and so like what do we do Lord, we somehow invest as much as we can so we can somehow do something about them and sometimes even when everything's going well even then people will think of the future and imagine something that will go bad and be anxious today just destroying their present peace and their joy. That's how outcome-driven we are. But the problem with that is, if that's your joy and if it's linked to an experience, then it's going to be a rollercoaster ride because we're a minority. And the kingdom of God has values that is not going to be accepted, a lifestyle that is not going to be understood where we serve. So then what do we do? Should we have no outcomes at all? No, we should. God wants us to have an outcome that we can anchor our joy in. Just like last week, if you remember, be the least amongst all. Sounds a little depressing. But he was saying, be the least. Hey, I've got something better for you so that you'll be the greatest in the kingdom. And so similarly here when he says, I don't want you to find joy in your achievements and your experience, but I want you to find joy that is solid, that is deep, and that will last forever. What is that? He wants us to taste joy that the psalmist tries to explain in Psalm 112, verse 7. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. He'll have no fear. He doesn't say there's going to be no bad news. But no news is going to be bad because you have no fear. Why? Because even if situations are constantly going to fluctuate, you have anchored yourself in the hope that God is unchanging and that He is good. And so that is what he wants him to see here. Don't rejoice. Don't rejoice that demons are submitting to you. Rather rejoice in this. In what? Rejoice that God took your name and wrote it down in the book of life. That when you grew up and you struggled for insignificance and worthlessness and you wondered and you just grew up in anxiety and you didn't know what to make of life, you flip through the, these, these pages of this book, the word of life, and you go to a place and say, my name's written there. You probably didn't read Abel and Colin and Robin. You didn't read your names in it. But you read it and you realize that God actually, the Spirit testifies to your spirit that you are His child. And that you're sealed by His Spirit and He's adopted you forever. And God says, I want you to rejoice in that. What's he reminding the disciples and us to rejoice in? The joy of being His child over the joy of achievement. The joy of belonging to him over the joy of outcomes. He wants you to rejoice in this and saying, knowing, rejoice that your names are written, knowing that you're going to be in heaven someday. You already know that. Or someone could hear that and say, that's a little arrogant. Not enough in the following verses I read that he's hidden this from some people and you're so sure that you're going. And you can tell them, yes, because Christ died for sinners and Christ died for the unworthy, for the broken, for weak ones. And so it's not my strength. My assurance comes from his grace and his promise. Like in Romans 5.20, even when sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's our story, isn't it? And so you can see that he wants you to rejoice in outcomes. Not in outcomes that you can control, but in a different outcome. He wants you to rejoice in an outcome that you have nothing to do with. Because it says rejoice that your names are written. In passive tense, or as a you, you, you experience that as a passive recipient, I didn't do anything about this, but I will rejoice that he wrote my name. And he's not going to blot that name out. So the outcome is not linked to what you and I do. The outcome is linked to what God did, because God, in his great love and rich mercy, wrote your name in the book of life. And so brothers and sisters, you got to ask yourself, what is my joy, and even as you listen to all this, what is your joy truly in? And look, he's warning them of this danger that even when you minister in the kingdom, this warning is true. You could start off by doing something in the kingdom in Christian circles and soon be ablaze set on the road to hell itself. Think of examples like Matthew 7:22, the warning. "Lord, we did miracles in your name. we drove out demons in your name." And Jesus says, "I don't know you. You could even do something as powerful as driving out demons. And still come under the influence of demons if your joy has been with you at the center of it, but something that God got you to do and not about Him. That's what the disciples are struggling with over here. And you can reduce this, you can reduce this in my name, in Jesus' name, as a means to achieve your joy, isn't it? Because in Jesus' name, a whole lot of good things can come to us. And this is not a new struggle. Because the disciples started off well over here, and they, and they experienced this mission, and they come back, and they're rejoicing in this. They got the same problem, just like their forefathers. Even Israel had the same problem, and a lot of us modern Christians have the same problem. What do I mean? Think of Deuteronomy 8.10. What does it say? When you've eaten, and you've settled down, and you build fine houses, you can paraphrase that, as your job goes well. And your lifestyle gets better, something's going to happen. What's going to happen when things go well? Do not forget the Lord your God. Because it says your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. And when it says you will forget, it doesn't mean you suddenly forget Yahweh and who Messiah is. You don't know. No, it's not a memory lapse. You still continue to praise and pray and read. But the problem is now you're delighting in what He is doing for you, not in Him. And so his commands and his, his laws are not what you delight in. It's your experience and the outcome that you taste. And so now, the joy for Israelites and, and, and for a whole lot of us is that it's not this ultimate experience that he redeemed me and he snatched me from the flames of hell and he's taking me home and my name is written there. Why were they so excited about going into the promised land? Is it because meat is going to be better in Canaan than in Egypt? Or why are you and I so excited about the fact that your names are written in heaven? What is so exciting? What awaits you there in heaven? It's not an outcome. It's not an experience. But that experience and the joy revolves around a person. You see? And so... We've got to remember this because heaven, this heavenly joy that Jesus is pointing us to flows from a person. It's not from a precious thing or from a precious experience. All the experiences are a byproduct of who God is over there. And so when you think of prosperity gospel preachers, in a world where people value things the most, things that value the most are used actually in heaven to pave streets, isn't it? There's lots of gold over there. And so when you think of a prosperity gospel preachers, sometimes with the word of faith movement will speak the word of faith into movements. Why? Because you take a bad outcome and you make it a good outcome. They're outcome driven. What they want is for things to go well over here. They want a piece of heaven here. Not so much about the person or the one who carried the cross, but they want those outcomes and life. they want life to be prosperous here now. And that is why you see what's on the streets of heaven quite often over people's ears and necks and their hands. They want a piece of heaven in a wrong sense, but heaven is glorious because God dwells there. You and I have that foretaste as we look at this verse. Your names are written there. And this is the joy that Jesus wants for us as disciples. The joy of being His child over the joy of an achievement. And what this does for us, is it takes us away from that roller coaster ride. It takes us away from constantly fluctuating because when you're sent out like this, and if this is really your joy, then irrespective of the outcome, you and I will be able to say, all things work out for the good of those whom God loves. Because you know that the situation is not the output, that's not what matters the most, but you know a good God will be glorified through that and is drawing you closer to Him. So I don't know if it's, you know, this morning when you look back at your life, is it this joy that actually sustains you? Because it feels great when you step out with the joy to serve, isn't it? When you want to sing, when you want to preach, when you want to teach, when you encourage others, when you want to counsel others, or whatever ministry, whatever little way you're serving others, it feels really good till somebody actually comes and rejects you maybe. So sometimes, let's say you're, you're going to teach a little group, whatever group that is, and you spend a lot of time praying and investing and reading and you do all that and you go and you spend time expositing God's word faithfully and then a brother walks up to you after that and says, you know what, I totally lost you. I didn't understand what you were trying to say. And you say, well, I hope you take something away. I said, don't worry. I'm still rejoicing in what I heard last week when the other brother preached. It was so convicting and it was so clear to me. And you say, praise God, my joy is that Jesus is glorified in your life. No, that's not how we feel. It discourages us because we're at the center. But rejection is supposed to be a part of this life, isn't it? Remember, we're sent as sheep among wolves, lamb among wolves. And if I can't handle, in some sense, polished, some sort of polished sheep in wolves' clothing in church environments, on fellowships. How are you going to handle the real ones out there? God has designed some of them to give you some practice before you get out there. Or like in Jeremiah twelve five, if you run with men, if you compete with men with, on your foot and you're worn out, how will you run with horses? But this joy will get us going. This joy will help us endure. Because you delight in the fact that your name is written and he is your father and you are his child. I think David understood this in Psalm 101 when he says, serve the Lord with gladness. Because your joy now is in the fact that he loves you and you belong to him. And your joy is, I want to do what my father says, I will obey him. Serve the Lord with gladness. It does not say, serve the Lord and your gladness and tidings of joy will come based on the result. Your joy is just in doing what he says. And the result can cause you to have a burden, but still won't take away the joy. And Jesus experiences his joy. Even though we know him as a man of sorrows, quite often there were moments in his life that he pressed on. He even endures, like in Hebrews 12, to the cross, for the joy that was set before him. Because he looked to the Father and he looked to us. So as disciples, what does Jesus find his joy in? Look at verse 21. It will be, Incredible for us to try and understand what the mind of Christ is here because he's given us the mind of Christ. What is he saying in 21? At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from wise and learned ones and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. That's a rare verse. We don't read a verse like that anywhere in the New Testament, isn't it? But Jesus is full of joy, a man of sorrows. But here you you see him. He's so full of joy. And the words, the English here actually doesn't do justice to it. In the original text, it says he was exuberant. He was thrilled with joy in contrast to the word that was used for disciples' joy, which was just gladness, exuberant and gladness. What is he finding so much joy in? He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned. So right at the outset, he's rejoicing in the Father who is omniscient, who is all-knowing, who is almighty. And he's saying, I praise you, Lord. You are infinitely wise and sovereign in contrast to the insignificant wisdom that wise men of this world have. So I praise you, Father. And then he says, I praise you because you've hidden these things from some kind of people. What kind of people? From people who are smart from people who are wise in their own eyes, from people who are self-reliant, from people who are not teachable. He says you've hidden it from these people. What this does not mean is he's hidden it from people who are intelligent. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean all of you who are believers here this morning are morons. That's not what this text means. I heard a useful illustration that helped me sort of understand the the, the gravity of what he's saying over here. When he says this, I think it was John MacArthur who said this. He says, you think of Top-ranking people in your society. Think of people who eventually make it, you know, cut it across those science grades and they become scientists. And when they get there, what are they actually doing? They're working at the lowest level of creation because they're trying to figure out what lies inside an atom. So the highest level working at the lowest. And he's saying, let's not disregard what they do. But the point is, suppose you want to take something at the highest level of creation, let's say a human being, a person, And you get him into a room with all the best scientists and say, can you tell us what is on the person's mind? There's no way they can crack that unless the person decides to reveal what's on his mind. And then he says, now take that to God. There's no point even starting. How would anyone know? No empirical data, no inference, no smart person, nobody who cracks any code is ever going to remotely understand what is on God's mind and who he is unless... God reveals himself. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has planned for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 and in 2.10 He says, But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. And Jesus is rejoicing in that as he thinks about this. And he says, you've hidden these from, from some kind of people, from the learned ones, and you've revealed it to little babes such as this. Now, when I say little babes, in your context, it does not mean females who are cute. I don't know where, a lot of us, I know, call each other baby. That's not the baby that's being mentioned over here. Maybe you got that from the Westerners who started that maybe in the 60s, or maybe actually the Malayalis who predated that. A lot of them have their first name as baby. Or maybe you read scripture and you said, I get it. My partner is so godly and so humble and is, is, is falls in this category, so I'll call them baby. No, it's none of that. But what is he saying over here? The kingdom of God is for certain kind of people, little children, infants and babes. What about these infants? They acknowledge they need to be carried. They are not self-reliant. They are not self opinionated They are humble. They are teachable. When it comes to things of life and wisdom, even if they don't have an answer, they just say, Father, you show us what the answer is. And Jesus is rejoicing over here, saying, I praise you, Father. Because he looks at these disciples over here and he knows there's no way they would have made it unless the Father had called them. They were needy ones. And the Father has hidden this from different kinds of people. From the self-reliant, from the self-opinionated. And he says, God, this gave you pleasure. Do you see that? Father, this gave you pleasure. Why? Because God delights in seeing the needy people satisfied. He's rejoicing in God's infinite wisdom and in His nature. And He's rejoicing knowing what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be full of people who exalt God and who praise Him. Why? Because they know that there's nothing in themselves to boast in. They can't take credit for anything. And you and I can begin now. We don't have to wait for heaven. And even as Jesus thinks of this, Some of the commentators say this is is a joy that actually looks beyond all this. He knows what's coming up. They say it's an eschatological joy. You see how complicated that is? But for all of us, what that means is that he's thinking of the end times. He knows what this grand celebration is going to be like. He says it's going to be the Father, the King of Kings, the Almighty, and there's going to be a whole lot of people celebrating this event with him. What kind of people? Needy people. Infinitely wise and people who are not wise. Absolutely capable of everything and people who are absolutely broken and dependent and sinful. Can you see that? Now we don't have any reference of that to actually look around. You got events maybe like America's Got Talent, where you have some people who've made it in life will sit across the panel and look at some others and only the ones who've cut across a certain level will be celebrated and the others are rejected publicly. Not just that, sports, entertainment, pick any category. It's usually the elite who get there and a certain kind to celebrate with them. There's no global event that is unique like this. But there's one place, there's one place where the king of kings is exalted and the audience is very unique. It's like this, it's full of needy, broken, sinful, helpless people. And all of them are celebrating and overwhelmed in the fact that they're precious and they're rejoicing. They're overwhelmed in the fact that the one who's exalted, the one who's so infinitely set apart, celebrates them, will sing over them and rejoices in them. And Jesus says, What a glorious plan this is, Father. And he's so full of the Spirit that he's celebrating this. There's one place where you and I can taste that, isn't it? When we come before a person like that, we come week after week and we know we're worthless. What we can celebrate what the world doesn't understand. Like in Isaiah 57, 15, this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever and whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but I also live among him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Do you see what gives the father pleasure? Do you see what Jesus means when he says, I have hidden these things. I've hidden these things from some kind of people and I'm revealing this to some other kind of people. Hidden and revealed. Have you played hide and seek when you were young? Maybe now you play it online. I don't know how that works. But if you've actually played hide and seek, you know how that works. Somebody goes and then you, you count, maybe to ten, not ten, they actually make you count it to hundred because the goal is the other person wants to make sure they get enough time so they're tucked away in some corner and you never find them. And so the, the thrill in the game is for the person is when you play, The one who's hiding is so focused that he doesn't want to be found. The joy of successfully beating the seeker. You didn't find me. Have you ever played with children? Little children? They're so fascinated with the game. They're so overwhelmed. They can't contain their joy. You count to 10 and give them another 10 seconds and they'll say, here I am. Find me. What is their excitement about? Their joy is the joy of being found. What a huge difference, isn't it? They are delighting in the fact. They delight in the joy of being found. They're enjoying a relationship with the person that they're playing. Not like adults who can crouch beneath a, a couch that is half their size, completely in dust and tuck away themselves in sweat for hours and are saying, I haven't been found as yet. Which kind of joy is yours? The joy of an achievement or the joy of being found? And the Lord here is trying to tell them that. see, rejoice that your names are written. Rejoice in the joy of being His child, not in the joy of your outcomes and your achievements. Now you see, this heavenly joy actually shapes our ministry as well. Now we serve others. Let me explain. Jesus delights. He says, I delight in the Father. I take pleasure in what the Father finds pleasure in. What does the Father find pleasure in? The father finds pleasure in reaching out to some kind of people. What kind of people? Simple, humble, teachable, those of no reputation. That's what the father and the son find pleasure in. And if you are a disciple, what should then be your pleasure? What kind of people are you trying to reach out to? What are your weekends like? And such a church that takes joy in what the father and the son take joy in. They'll be so flooded with people who are needy, but they won't be overwhelmed with the question saying, how do we meet these needs now, Lord? Because when they see God's grace at work, they're not suddenly preoccupied with the question saying, what about the outcome? How well are, gonna, how well are we going to fare with this? How, what, what disciple strategy should be put in place? Why? Because their joy is just in being His children. And in those kind of churches, you'll have disciples actually who are raised automatically why? Because they're growing up in a culture of grace. They're not coming out of classrooms. Because they're finding joy in what the Father finds joy in. So when you say this, rejoice that your names are written. What is so exciting? And by now it must be so clear to us. What is this that is hidden and what is revealed? Jesus says, no one knows the son except the Father. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So what do you need to do if you're here this morning and you don't know the Son? If you're needy, and if you're broken, and if you're repentant, and you want a revelation of God, all you've got to do is say, yes, Lord, I'm willing to yield. And Jesus is stating this truth when you read that verse, saying no one knows God. Only the first person knows the second, the second knows the first. And it's an incredible thing that we can't comprehend, that at one point it was just... The triune God delighting in himself. There's nobody else over there at that point in time. They knew each other so well, and they delighted in themselves so well, they did not need any creation. And at some point, they decided to reveal themselves to created beings like you and me so that we can enter that incredible joy, that all-satisfying joy that the Father and the Son had through the work of the Spirit. And if you have this joy of being a child, if that joy is going to shape everything that they do, that we do as disciples. Imagine what our lives would be like. Now we can go on and on, but I'm just going to call out four simple applications, not even going to explain them, but things that you can reflect on. The first one, if my joy is about being and all my doing comes from being, if it's not the joy of achievement, if it's the joy of just knowing that my name is written, then I'm not going to find joy in just engaging in mere disciplines. My morning quiet time is not going to be a discipline. There are no disciplines in my life anymore. It's a time where I delight in my relationship with my father and I never get enough of it. Second, if all my doing stems from a joy in relationship, then I will begin to understand what Jesus meant in John 15, 5. Remain in me, abide in me, delight in me, and you will bear much fruit. Fruit production is his work. You don't compare and compete and think of, why is my life not getting any better? Because your joy is not an abiding. But if you just remain in Him, God says, you will bear much fruit for my glory. Third, when we speak of the cost of discipleship, so often we speak of it as something that is incredibly difficult and distant. But when you, if it's a joy of belonging and delighting in the Father, then the cost of discipleship actually is the pathway to intimacy. You look for commandments. Every time I find a commandment and I want to do it, it's not burdensome, I get one step closer to the Father. That's how we look at Scripture. And finally, if all our doing stems from our being, then as a church, we won't be drawn so much to processes as much as we will be drawn to the person of Jesus. So let this joy shape us. You see, you live in a world where Everybody's trying to blow their trumpet. And they're trying to find the joy somehow of finding some sort of attention among people. But if we remain in this joy, and there's a greater joy that awaits us. We know we're significant of great work now, but there's something greater that awaits us. That one day, remember the song, the trumpet will actually go off when the king is coming back? I'm trying to recall the words of that song. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more, when the morning breaks eternal bright and fair, when the saved of the earth shall gather over on the other shore, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And there are people, scriptures flooded with stories like that. Everybody who followed Jesus, Hebrews 12, is 11 is full of stories like that. The outcomes weren't that incredible, but they delighted in God. Think of John Bunyan's example, and I'll close with that. Not getting into any details but imagine 12 years in prison and he could have got out on year one year two year three but he doesn't the only condition was we will let you out but you just cannot preach the gospel and he says no way i cannot do that how can i not preach the gospel because his joy was in being god's child and doing what gave the son and the father pleasure in telling needy people about him. And so it was, he had to refrain. And every time he would say no, he's actually saying no to meeting his family. And he had five children. Of which one was blind and the youngest that he was attached to. Week, Year after year, month after month, longing and saying no. There's a certain joy there that we need to understand. And until that, our greatest joy... Is in delighting in him, in remaining him and in knowing him. Would you take some time in silence just to reflect on scripture that we read? And ask yourself what your joy is about this morning. Does your joy usually stem from how well situations go for you? Or is God reminding you to delight in the incredible truth yet your name is written that you belong to him. And every time the joy of achievements draws you away from that you will return to this joy. Ask the Lord to preserve this truth in us. We just need to know him. Knowing the greatness of who he is and what he's done for us. We hope you were encouraged by today's sermon. Please visit our website, cc-dubai.com, for more information on Center Church Dubai. If you know someone who will be blessed by this sermon, please share this podcast link so they can stay updated.